Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with what legal analysts and pundits are describing as game over for Trump in being able to defend himself from charges pending from the special counsel, Jack Smith, who is investigating Trump's theft of classified documents and obstruction of justice in holding on to them. Joining us is Dennis Aftergat, a former federal prosecutor and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco, who has won cases of, in, of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently serves as counsel to lawyers defending American democracy, and he has an article of the Bulwark, Why Trump Wants U.S. to Default on Debt, and we'll discuss the existence of a recording from July of 2021 in which Trump claims to have a classified war plan to attack Iran, which he acknowledges is classified and can't be shared. Then we'll look into why Biden's poll numbers do not reflect his many achievements, including the bipartisan debt ceiling deal now before the Senate, which appeals to a lot of Americans in the center who don't consider compromise a dirty word. Joining us to discuss the reaction from progressives is Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He is a former managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine, and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. His books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. Then finally, we'll speak with Ben Freeman, a research fellow with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Previously, he was director of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy and the National Security Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, where he spearheaded the Foreign Influence Database. He is the author of The Foreign Policy Auction, and we will discuss his new report at Responsible Statecraft, How Weapons Firms Influence the Ukraine Debate. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Dennis Aftergat, who's a former federal prosecutor and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco, who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. He currently serves as counsel to lawyers defending American democracy, and he has an article of the Bulwark, Why Trump Wants U.S. to Default on Debt. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dennis Aftergat. Honored to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Dennis. And the idea that a former president of the United States would, would want the U.S. to default is an act of high treason. I cannot understand how that <laughs> there hasn't been a, an eruption of outrage about that because it would destroy the U.S. economy. It would take away the value of the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. It would be music to the ears of Putin and Xi Jinping, etc., and a person who would make that call would really be dedicated against the interests of the United States. So why do you think it was just sort of brushed off, except for your article, I guess? I think we've just become inured to uh, uh, Trump's operating completely on his own self-interest and not caring one whit about the interests of the United States. So what's his self-interest here? His self-interest is that if the country, if the government defaulted, there would be chaos. And the likelihood is that 
uh, it was on Biden's watch. He's the one that would get blamed, even if it was the Republicans who caused the whole thing to happen. That's what Trump wants. That's in his self-interest. He needs to get elected president to secure immunity from the prosecutions that are coming. Well, let's talk about the prosecutions that are coming, because uh, what we're hearing now from the latest revelations coming uh, from CNN, that uh, there is a recording that the special counsel Jack Smith has of Trump boasting to a couple of authors doing a biography on Mark Meadows back in 2021 at Bedminster at his golf course, basically Trump's rustling some paper, I don't know whether he was actually showing a document, but he was boasting about a document written up by the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, uh, of a contingency plan to uh, to go to war against Iran. Uh, and he says to the authors that I can't show it to you because it's classified. And, and in, of course, in doing so, he basically eviscerates his defenses uh, that Trump has put forward in the obstruction of case against him that uh, the special counsel is developing over the classified documents uh, theft. And to follow up on what we just discussed, here's another example of this complete narcissist acting in a way so destructive of our national security. This was a secret document classified about, uh, allegedly, about possible plans to attack Iran. And you've, you've accurately described the reports. If they're true, this is the way Trump would get information out. I'm sorry I can't tell you about this thing that would completely undermine the, the statements that Trump hated from General Milley that were apparently quoted in The New Yorker. So he gets the information out by saying these things that he hopes those authors would repeat in some vague way. But in the course of it, here's this guy who's so focused on his self-interest that he doesn't even see how he hoists himself on his own petard. He says, I wish I could show it to you, but I can't. Showing this critical mental element, the most difficult thing to prove, which is he knew it was wrong to even have them. And secondly, apparently the report is, we don't know if it's true, the report is, that he said he wished he had declassified it, blowing out this claim that he's been making that he could just think about something as a former president and declassify it. So he's blown his defenses out of the water. You just have to, as a former prosecutor, I have to sit back and admire Jack Smith at the evidence that he seems to be accumulating that is just one overwhelming piece of evidence after the other. And just to give some context on the document that uh, Milley supposedly wrote or may, may not have written, but it's a four-page document, which was a contingency plan for a huge American attack on Iran, that came up at the end of Trump's presidency when Milley was worried that Trump would, and in fact he sent a message out throughout the Pentagon you know, warning about unlawful orders coming from the president. They were worried at the time that Trump might get America into a war in order to help uh, his ratings uh, in the last throes of the election. Right, and uh, boy are we lucky that we have bulwarks of uh, institutionalism in the military, at least in the leadership level, like Milley, to stop that from happening. That is that from the movie Wag the Dog, where 
there's some there's some film Ian where the the presidential candidate declares war or causes some national security crisis in order to get elected. That's what Milley was afraid of. That's what he was protecting. So Jack Smith has this tape. In the CNN story said they hadn't heard the tape, but there are apparently uh, a number of people in the background there. There are the two authors, and there's also the people from uh, Trump's staff at this July 2021 meeting at Bedminster, the communication specialist Margot Martin among them. It raises the question of classified documents being at Bedminster, and that's never been made clear whether they really did retrieve anything, because the main uh, problem with the classified documents was down in Mar-a-Lago. So that opens up that case. But the other issue here is that Jack Smith has already interviewed, through the grand jury, Mark Meadows, as well as Amago Martin, and I believe Palatori, is it the lawyer? Which yeah. lawyer did yes. he interview? Yeah, both of them. Both right. of them. Right, and, and he's, but more importantly, Dennis, he's he's interviewed uh, Mark Milley as well. Correct. So and he's got the, a whole corroboration going there, doesn't he? Again, Ian, uh, two things. I just have to sit back and admire the relentless thoroughness of Jack Smith, and it's smart because, as you know, as is said. If you shoot the king, you better kill the king. I, I say that figuratively. If you indict the king, you better convict the king. And you need every piece of evidence. And oh, my God, has Jack Smith excelled at getting every piece of evidence. Ian, I, I, I mentioned a moment ago about Trump being so short-sighted and so self-interested, he hoists himself on his own petard. Here's another example, Ian. Early for the presidency in November. Why does he do that? He does it because he thinks it will give him a political narrative. They're only going after me because I'm running for president and I'm the leading candidate, right? Guess what that gets him? Merrick Garland says, okay, he's a political candidate. I'm going to appoint a special counsel. It gets him Jack Smith. Ian, pardon me for thinking, none of this evidence would ever have been collected but for the appointment of Jack Smith, which wouldn't have happened but for Trump's early declaring for the presidency. <laughs> so... Have you heard any rumors, uh, Dennis Aftergat, to the extent to which it's possible that others uh, have seen these uh, classified documents that, that he showed off to people, in particular the Saudis? They would certainly have an interest in uh, uh, war plans to go against Iran. There are rumors that the Saudi LIV Gulf tour was a way for the Saudis to pay off Trump. We know that they paid off Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, to the tune of at least $2 billion, although I've heard rumors that it was actually as much as $5 billion. So have you heard anything to the extent that, that Jack Smith might be looking at what happened to some of these documents? I mean, it's, there's apparently the sound of the paper being waved around while he's telling these authors of this book on Mark Meadows that he can't show them the document, but the implication is he has it in his hand. Um, is it possible that there could be, I mean, most legal analysts and pundits are now saying that this revelation of this tape is game over for Trump. But I would think the ultimate smoking gun would be if Trump actually shared some of these classified documents with foreign powers, foreign leaders or representatives thereof. Two things, Ian. Number one, any prosecutor would be trying to find that evidence because that is dynamite. The answer, though, is that 
I don't know, but I don't underestimate this guy. Number two, I'm just going to give you one more example. And there's so many where Trump trips all over himself in getting himself uh, on the verge of really being convicted in this case. Uh, it's taped. And why is it taped? Because these are authors and journalists and he wants to make sure they don't misquote him. He has the evidence, but he's pretty, it's on tape. That is the best possible evidence any prosecutor can have. And Trump has now handed it to Jack Smith because he's not as good a crook as he thinks. He has created a tape and he's not thinking that there's going to be a Jack Smith. He's not thinking there's going to be a search warrant for Martin's phone, the his age phone. And boy, does he mess up his criminal case. I just want to say that he has one strategy left and that's to win the election. And that's why every one of your listeners has to do everything possible to keep that from happening. Well, going back to our original uh, beginning of our conversation, Dennis, where we talked about why would an American, let alone a former American president, want the U.S. to default, how much is he taking his orders from Putin? We don't know. We know all we can assume now is that Putin's biggest play now is to get the either the House uh, radicals uh, in the House, the Freedom Caucus, to cut funds or in or bring back Trump in order to cut funds to Ukraine. And as Trump has promised, he, the, he would pull the U.S. out of NATO. So you better believe that Putin's invested in Trump coming back. Totally. They have shared interest. Trump has interest in Putin doing what he did in 2020 and though updated with artificial intelligence and whatever new tools Putin's uh, GRU intelligence, military intelligence people have. It's possible he's taking orders, but it's just a mutual collaboration. And it, it's just a natural, natural collaboration. And Trump is Putin's useful idiot, as the as Lenin's phrase had it. Uh, Ian, I just want to mention quickly for your listeners that there's something for them to look for. When this case does get indicted, it's expected within the next weeks. And that is, how does Jack Smith charge it to ensure that the case gets tried in D.C.? It has to be tried in D.C. And the obstruction charges and the espionage charges, the gist of those actions took place in Florida. But Jack Smith cannot charge this case in Florida. It would be self-destructive because of who the jury pool would be and because who the judges might be. And Jack Smith has charges that are based in D.C., unlawful removal from a federal office in D.C. And Trump said on CNN, again, hoisting himself in his own Petard, that he was there and he had every right to take the documents. And there's also the crime of conspiracy to defraud the United States. It's going to be interesting to see how Jack Smith charges it because continuing offenses under the venue statute, an offense that began in D.C. and continued in Florida can be charged in both places and by conspiracy. So. I just alert your your listeners to be looking to how Jack Smith charges those those counts, the gist of which took place in Florida. Oh, uh, in if I may, one more point about uh, 
a prosecutor looking for whether Trump shared the documents. It's not necessary. It's juicy, but it's not necessary under the espionage statute. All he has to do is to unlawfully retain documents that relate to the national defense, defense that he was not entitled, he was not authorized to possess. Unlawful retention, willful retention of national defense documents he was not authorized to possess. So the elements are really fulfilled. The question is, how's Jack Smith going to charge it so it relates to D.C., where he would have, in all likelihood, more favorable judges and a jury that does not include a lot of never, I mean, all. I'm sorry, always Trump jurors who will vote to acquit him and hang the jury, whatever the evidence is. Well, Dennis Aftergut, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Honored always to be here. Well, thank you, Dennis. And again, I've been speaking with Dennis Aftergut, who's a former federal prosecutor and chief assistant city attorney in San Francisco, who has won cases of significance in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. And he currently serves as counsel to the lawyers defending American democracy. And he has an article of the Bulwark, Why Trump Wants U.S. to Default on Debt. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into why Biden's poll numbers do not reflect his many achievements, including the bipartisan debt ceiling deal now before the Senate, which appeals to a lot of Americans in the center who don't consider compromise a dirty word. Listen, do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He's a former managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine, and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. And his books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Richard Parker. Uh, nice to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's been obviously a lot of uh, complaints from the House Freedom Caucus, 71 of whom voted against the deal that was just passed on Wednesday in the House and is now before the Senate. A number of also progressive Democrats, also small number, voted against it. But how do you see this? Because I'm always astounded that President Biden gets so little credit for some really ambitious stuff that he's managed to get passed in spite mm -hmm. of the fact that he's got a razor-thin majority. And in this case, he made a compromise, which a lot of people thought was completely unnecessary in the first place. But nevertheless, it looks as if it was a smart political move for him where he's getting a lot of credit for doing something that's bipartisan. And frankly, he held off the crazies. Uh, they didn't get, they wanted 4.8 trillion in cuts, and they, they basically got a trillion. Right, right. So I, I think there's something that's, that, that many progressives have yet to really give Biden credit for or to understand about Biden. And it was something that was driven home for me by an old friend who's a, many years a staffer for Teddy Kennedy. He said, look, Joe Biden has been a Washington insider since he was 29 years old. That's half a century and the experience that he's got with those, those that half century in the Senate makes him a powerful force because he can read uh, uh, the political room, uh, particularly with people like Ron Klain, who was his uh, chief of staff, but now with his current uh, folks as well, too. The thing is that he has more experience than all the other people in the room, and he's got an ability to read the room. And he has historically been someone who can find the middle uh, in uh, uh, in a in a negotiation, better than almost anyone else. He's not Ted Kennedy. He's not a conservative, 
but he's been able to find the middle. And I think he spent eight years as vice president watching Barack Obama essentially learn the the game. Uh, and it was a game that he had already played for 40 years when he uh, took the job of the vice president. And what he has done now repeatedly uh, in policy moves and also in legislative moves is demonstrate that, that he's got that ability. And frankly, I wouldn't have predicted that uh, going into the 2020 election. I wouldn't have uh, uh, said that he was going to steer the Democratic Party and the country in this direction. I mean, in many respects, he's doing the work of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, there are things that I'm very much concerned about that have to do with international economic, economic policy and also the geopolitics of what's going on right now with Russia. But that's that's to talk about. Um, but it's to recognize that we have in Biden here someone who has the skills that no one has seen in the Democratic Party since Lyndon Johnson decided not to run in 68. And do you think that the American people, I mean, it's always been said that American voters are in the center, largely. Mm -hmm. Does this play with them? I mean, the idea of bipartisanship, uh, I've talked to a few people and have broached a lot of the criticism of why he even had to negotiate in the first place. And using right. Boehner's expression, you know, that these people like Marjorie Taylor Greene are legislative terrorists. But by and large, right. most of the people I talked to basically said, you know, what's wrong with the two parties finally agreeing on the compromise? That's the American right. system. So is this playing well, do you think? So, I mean, it's very hard to read the, the poll numbers. And so you look at the poll numbers and he's got crummy poll approval ratings. And yet his, uh, his uh, 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 margins in terms of victory in the election were much stronger than his poll numbers. And so... What I want to believe is that there is a divided country that is looking to try to understand what the center is going forward. Um, you know, the, the center point of American politics has changed in, in uh, several different directions over the last 40 years. I actually think that Biden is a harbinger of a potentially long progressive run. Uh, given the shifting demographics of the United States, the shifting education levels of the voting population, the level of voter participation. Um, and uh, I, I think that he thinks that that's true, too. And as a Washington insider, he is additionally committed to sustaining and enlarging the power of his own Democratic Party, because that's how he gets work done, how he gets business done. And you know, I I think that he's going to present a very interesting case to the American people of things that he's gotten done in the face of Republican resistance to some of the most fundamental desires of the American people on issues like social welfare, justice, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to have to see, um, you know, a lot of it's going to be how the media chooses to intermediate uh, between Biden and the public and just how much of a fist fight that the media wants to encourage between Biden and uh, Trump, uh, which, of course, plays to the temptations of the media for industry and profit purposes, but doesn't really help the American people. So did the vote that just took place on Wednesday in the House, which was a combination of less right and more centrist Republicans and, and the more mm -hmm. centrist Democrats, is that a harbinger mm -hmm. of how Biden and McCarthy might be able to get things done? It's a harbinger of how they can get a few things done. I mean, you can look at the Senate, too, and Biden's been able to move a lot of his judicial nominees. Uh, it isn't a question of, you know, having uh, uh, all of those nominees bottled up through uh, special motions by uh, one or another conservative senator. And so I think that you know, we have taken on this idea that nothing can be accomplished. The country is too deeply divided. And it's not the case in a lot in a lot of instances. This is a functioning six and a half trillion dollar federal uh, government that seems to be able to get basic services uh, and basic work done. Um, I mean, we seem to be having problems with our ammunition supply lines and that sort of thing for the Ukrainians, but, you know, we do seem to be moving forward. So 
I've suggested that in terms of this next election, assuming that Trump holds on to being the, the, a clear front-runner on the Republican right. side and right. maybe even runs his campaign from jail, <laughs> what I find... Norman, consi- Norman Thomas did a credible do- job of that. <laughs> right. Don't forget. <laughs> well, what, what I find troubling, though, is that if in the next year Biden sort of stumbles and trips or something, like Jerry Ford did often, uh, mm-hmm. you know, his poll numbers are just going to sink. So... Do you right. think that the Democrats, uh, or at least in terms of the presidency, with Biden, are hanging by a thread? Look, I mean, we're hanging by a thread, but it's 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 more than a than a piece of silk. It's it's some fairly tough nylon. Uh, I mean, I, a couple of things. One, I think that again, the dramatization of his health issues are both real and also melodramatically exaggerated. Um, I think that what we want to worry about is not whether he stumbles, but whether or not we can manage the economy's continued recovery, low levels of unemployment and declining levels of inflation. Uh, I think that there are going to be more voters who are persuaded by that than they are about whether he stumbles and falls, because in the can, the Republican, the Democrats have got plenty of footage of of uh, uh, Trump doing exactly the same thing. Um, so I'm, you know, the difference between an 80 year old and a 76 year old to the vast majority of voters is not immediately clear. So I, I would, I, I think there's a risk and obviously we live with that risk. And of course there's the unspoken issue of the constant threat of assassination, given the number of assassination attempts made against American presidents in the last hundred years. Um, but I would rather concentrate on the idea that, You know, you've got a president who, from a progressive point of view, has turned out to be a damn sight better than any of the almost anyone in the progressive community thought possible. Uh, And that right now there aren't viable alternatives and that the risk of uh, the Republican alternative is so great that uh, this is this is a time that we're going to have to find virtue uh, in Joe Biden. And the remarkable thing is that there are recognizable signs of virtue in Joe Biden. So what explains then his sinking poll numbers when, if you go back to James Carville's adage, it's the economy, stupid, the economy's good. Unemployment is incredibly low. It's, an, it's almost a record low. Inflation is now being uh, controlled. The price of you know eggs and other and other things have have stabilized, sure. and of course, so much of the pricing jump w- was corporations taking advantage of of uh, inflation sure. and so, price right. gouging. So, for, right, right. So, so what, the answer is, I'm not a mechanical Marxist, and I never thought that the economy alone could explain voting behavior. And there's never been any evidence that the economy alone, in fact, does explain uh, behavior. And in races like these, where you have groups at the margin who are deeply, deeply angry and alienated with the system overall, those are, those are small voter blocks that are really critical because there are too many of these important state uh, uh, races for uh, for president that are going to be decided by paper thin margins, and that's where these small blocks get undue attention relative to their importance in the voter pool as a whole. I think a lot of what means uh, what it means to see low approval numbers for almost any politician today, and and it's not that Trump has better numbers, and you know none of the congressional leadership has numbers that are even close to Biden's. Uh, is a general discontent with the quality of politics. Um, and, you know, that's a problem that's been a serious one for the last 20 or 30 years. And, you know, it's going to require a sustained period of Democratic successes to really drive up confidence in the Democratic Party in terms of its long-term ability to govern. And, you know, that's the hard work of the next 10 to 20 years that's going to have to be done by three or four presidents to uh, and the party and, you know, everyone associated with with progressive politics to uh, recreate some kind of consensus 
in which you can talk about a majority of Americans trusting uh, a progressive government to lead and serve the American people. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, uh, Richard Parker, do you think that it's, that Biden should get tough in this fight if he's up against the more natural fascist, in my opinion, Trump, because he's clearly has an affection for dictators or the guy that's choosing a kind of fascist path to power, Ron DeSantis, right. either of those two, right. should he get tough? I mean, in the case of Trump, I don't understand why the Democrats could not basically say it out loud that when Trump recently called for the U.S. to default, he is carrying the water for America's enemies and China and Ru- mm-hmm. Russia and U- Iran. I mean, there'd be nothing more would please Xi Jinping than the U.S. to default right. and the dollar to become no longer be the global reserve currency, which gives the U.S. a massive advantage. So mm-hmm. the idea that you have a former president of the United States literally calling for something with, that would devastate the U.S. economy and and the mm-hmm. lives of Americans, why not call him a traitor? I mean, apart from the fact that it's so clear. Because that- I, I'll tell you why, Ian, because I think that he, he, Biden, and his people have to be watching overnight polls very carefully. And they have to, they, they have to be seeing that a lot of the work of calling out Trump right now is being done by the press. Um, uh, on all of these issues, whether it's the opinion press or even a lot of the mainstream news press, which is they're reporting the general sense of alarm um, with this idea of default, and they're associating Trump with it. And I think that Biden really would rather let Trump's actions speak for themselves and Trump's words speak for themselves I don't think he needs to be in a position of confronting Trump about every time that Trump does X, Y, or Z. The second, frankly, is, listen, we've had two impeachment trials. We've had innumerable uh, uh, legal cases. We've got a bunch of legal cases ongoing against Trump, and there's a Teflon quality to Trump uh, in all of these that's kind of amazing. And if I were the president... I would not be wasting my firepower uh, shooting against him. I, I think that instead, trying to tout my own record and actually perform in a way that gives my record some sheen is where I'd want to be. I mean, I think that there are ways in which the Supreme Court is doing uh, horrific damage to the Republican Party and things like this Dobbs decision. I really do. I mean, I think that there are a, a significant number of suburban Republican women who are not going to vote for a Republican candidate in this upcoming cycle. And that's, you know, it's the it's the Dred Scott decision of the 21st century. It is just unbelievable. Well, I thank you for joining us. Uh, just in closing, though, of course, there was a recent ABC Washington Post poll that put Trump ahead of Biden. So, I bring I it up. I mean, yeah, I hate I talking pay, about Trump. I would pay zero attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I okay. This far All out. All right. I will not pay any more attention to it. And I thank you for, jo- <laughs> I thank you for joining us. Ian, it's always good to talk with you. Thanks thank you. for calling. No Bye. problem. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He's a former managing editor of Ramparts, was co-founder of Mother Jones magazine and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. And his books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing a new report on how weapons firms influence the Ukraine debate.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ben Freeman, a research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Previously, he was director of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy and a national security fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, where he spearheaded the Foreign Influence Database. He's the author of The Foreign Policy Auction and has a new report at Responsible Statecraft, how weapons firms influence the Ukraine debate. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ben Freeman. Thanks, Ian. It's great to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Ben. And many critics of the war in in Ukraine have suggested that this is a bonanza for the uh, military-industrial complex. It does seem that over the years, the U.S. uh, has been sort of foisting its weapon systems on NATO and Mm -hmm. then... NATO has found itself to be very depleted uh, and they're trying to play catch up and because this war is burning through ammunition and other things at an extraordinary rate. So what's your sense then of how much this is U.S. policies being driven by the weapons industry? I, I think it's being heavily driven by the weapons industry. And at, at the end of the day, you all you have to look at is the dollars and cents. I'm, a, I'm very much, as you know, Ian, a, a follow the money kind of guy. And when we're talking about the Ukraine war, uh, defense contractors have publicly stated that they see it as a huge opportunity to, to make revenue, uh, to, to make sales and to make profits. And, and they've been doing that in droves. Uh, we've already seen more than $100 billion uh, awarded from the U.S. to Ukraine. Uh, about half of that, uh, now close to $50 billion of that, uh, is military equipment, is military assistance. Uh, and we've already seen multi-billion dollar contracts awarded to some of the top weapons makers like Lockheed Martin and, and, and Raytheon and others. Um, so what we're seeing here is is a big, big money trail going from the top players in the in the defense industrial base to Ukraine. And because of that money trail, we're seeing those weapons companies go to some pretty extensive uh, maneuvers to make sure the, that those weapon flows keep going to Ukraine. But a lot of the weapons uh, that the Ukrainians are getting are not. Are not- they're either recycled old weapons or they're not particularly effective. But on the other hand, some of the more prosaic things like artillery shells are in short supply because there's only one factory in Pennsylvania that makes them. So it does seem, again, that the military industrial complex wants to sell all their latest toys, but in terms of the basic stuff like ammunition, they're not interested in that. Right, right. This is an area where they're actually getting it both ways. They're they're selling the supplies that they have of of this older equipment and some of these older munitions, and and they're burning through them so quick that what they've done now is they've effectively lobbied the Pentagon and with the help of some think tanks, which which I hope, I hope we we'll get to in a minute. Uh, they they've convinced the Pentagon that they need to restart some of these old munitions lines and to invest, in some cases, hundreds of millions and even billions of dollars to restart these assembly lines for these weapons that, that were really going in short supply. Uh, and they've done it. The, the Pentagon has committed to it. And so th- these are these are years long processes that they're restarting, uh, building infrastructure that'll be there for years and probably decades to come. And so what we're seeing now in terms of the spending on the Ukraine war will ultimately lead to spending uh, from the Pentagon and uh, going to these defense contractors uh, for years to come, well after the Ukraine war ends. They'll still be profiting from it. So let's talk about the influence of think tanks and their relationship to the media. And needless to say, I find myself often interviewing people in these think tanks. So what's going on here, Ben? What we've done in this new report is we we took a look at the media landscape around the war in Ukraine. And what we sort of started to see anecdotally was that the the people who were being uh, quoted the most are are appearing on TV and, you know, writing articles the the most about the war in Ukraine 
uh, were from think tanks who we knew took defense industry uh, funding. And not surprisingly, we always heard these folks uh, recommending policies that would be a benefit to the defense industry. And so I decided to take a more systematic look at it. And so I, I looked at all of the top U.S. foreign policy think tanks in the U.S. And uh, I, I analyzed all of their funding. And I also analyzed how many times they were mentioned in, in, in our big three uh, print media outlets, the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and what I found from this was overwhelming evidence that defense industry funded think tanks are they've dominated. For, for lack of a better word, they've dominated the Ukraine war debate. And, and, and we took it a step further and we said, okay, you know, now that we know that, that they're being they're being cited more than other folks, what are they saying? And what we found over and over again is that they were recommending policies that would be of direct benefit to their funders. And whether that funder was you know, Lockheed Martin selling some of this am ammunition that we talked about before, you know, a Raytheon selling some of these missiles that they're using in Ukraine, Wh whatever it was, it, it, it seemed like in many cases, what we were finding was a very, very strong correlation between what would be uh, profitable for these think tanks funders and what those think tank experts were recommending that the U.S. provide to Ukraine. So what are the top think tanks that are receiving uh, defense contractor money and and influencing uh, journalism? Uh, the, the big ones are places like the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, also known as CSIS, um, uh, the Center for a New American Security, CNAS, um, as well as uh, the Atlantic Council, uh, the American Enterprise Institute's another one. In, in, in fact, the, 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 those are some of the big ones there. But what we found was actually that the, the top 10 foreign policy think tanks in the U.S., that includes those and, and some other folks, every single one of them accepts money from the Pentagon, our Pentagon contractor. Uh, it's 100 percent of, of the very top think tanks uh, on this issue. And so when when your listeners are hearing folks talk about the Ukraine war and they hear that they're from a think tank, you know, the odds are that that person is from a think tank that's funded by the defense industry and that very likely they're funded by somebody, uh, uh, one of these firms who's profiting directly from the Ukraine war. But do we know about the percentages of money from defense contractors vis-a-vis -vis money from other sources? We, we do. It's a little tricky. And one of the problems with tracking think tank funding is that um, think tanks aren't actually required to disclose any of their funding. And, and that was another revelation from the report. We found that almost a third of, of the top U.S. foreign policy think tanks, they don't disclose any donor information publicly. Uh, in, in fact, the way I got a lot of the, the information in the report was by emailing, calling some of these think tanks, you know, having in-depth conversations where they would privately provide me with some information, um, or investigative journalists who, who who I know were able to obtain some of this information and sort of put the dots together. Um, but we have a huge swath of think tanks who still don't publicly provide this information. And then even amongst those think tanks who do publicly provide this, um, transparency can be a little uh, transparency light. They, they don't provide full information on their donors. Some just list the, the donors without listing uh, dollar amounts. Well, and what most folks do is put donors into buckets that can be, you, you know, a donor range from 100,000 to 250,000. And then some think tanks like the, the, the Brookings Institution, for example, their, their highest uh, bucket is $2 million and above. And for some of the donors in there, we have no idea how far above $2 million it is. It could be $20 million or more even. Uh, but because of all these vagaries and because there's no legal requirement for these think tanks to disclose, it's still kind of the wild, wild west when it comes to figuring out who's funding our nation's think tanks. But the bottom line is that you've found, uh, Ben Freeman, that 78% of the top-ranked foreign policy think tanks in the U.S. receive funding from the Pentagon or its contractors. And that's what you've been able to document, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We, we uh, as I mentioned, my my sort of methods for getting this, we, we've gotten pretty good at this over the years of tracking down funding, even when those think tanks don't publicly provide it. So for most think tanks, we were able to provide, uh, uh, obtain this information. 
Um, and, and, and what we're hoping to do with this, with the report, uh, is to get this information out there and to make it more pub publicly accessible to folks. So w whenever your listeners are hearing somebody, uh, you know, on TV talk about the Ukraine war, uh, at the very least, we have a resource that they can go and take a look at if they're wondering whether that person, you know, might be working for an organization that that is funded by folks who have a financial stake in the Ukraine war. So. I'm trying to get a sense there, Ben, of whether this is the defense industry sort of basically jumping on the bandwagon and milking this situation for all it's worth, or is this just a situation that had to be responded to because, after all, the Russians did invade Ukraine? Right. I I think it's a little bit of both. I think when the the, the Ukraine war f first breaks out, you know, Russia invades Ukraine. I, I, I really think I was I, I, I was certainly on the side of, I think, most Americans and thought that we should come to Ukraine's aid. You, you, you know, we should give them the weapons that they needed to defend themselves. I mean, they're being attacked by an aggressor in their homeland. Um, you know, this is a democratic country. Um, you, you know, we, we should try and help them out uh, to to defend Ukraine. Where where I think the the second part sort of took over is when Pentagon contractors they they sort of saw the uh, the the dollars and cents that were that that were possible for them uh, as this war dragged on. And the longer the war dragged on, the more that military U.S. military spending to Ukraine kept increasing and increasing with every one of our supplemental aid packages. And I, what we know they did then, they, they went on a lobbying blitz to, to make sure that the money kept flowing to Ukraine, lobbying and PR blitz. And a lot of these think tanks, as, as we document in this new report, a lot of these think tanks that they fund, they really help them to make the case for the U.S. sending all of these weapons to Ukraine. So I think in a nutshell, Ian, the way I look at it is I, I think there very much was a, a, a rationale for the U.S. to to come to Ukraine's aid. But what defense contractors did, they, they poured gasoline on that fire and, and made sure that the U.S. Would, would, would give an extraordinary amount of weaponry. And in some cases, provide a lot of weaponry um, that that maybe isn't working that well. You know, after all, a lot of these munitions and a lot of the things that they're sending them, um, they've been on the shelf for years. And, and so this may, they, they, while they may be getting a quantity of equipment, they may not be getting the quality that they need. Your study looked into the 1,247 think tank media mentions. Uh, so that's an extraordinary... How many think tanks are we talking about here? Yeah, when we're we're talking about the top foreign policy think tanks, we pulled those from uh, the University of Pennsylvania ranks think tanks uh, every year. And we just looked at their list of the top ranked uh, U.S. foreign policy think tanks. Uh, and, and that was 34 think tanks in total that we looked at. And, and, and so then our next step was to say, OK, we've got this list of the top think tanks. Let's then go go through all these outlets and let's let, let's tally up all the number of times those think tanks were mentioned in these Ukraine war pieces. And, and from that, as you mentioned, it, it was over a thousand articles that that we had to comb through. Uh, and it took months, frankly. It was not easy. Right. So, but your article recommends that Congress should mandate the think tanks disclose their funders. Is any you getting any help from Capitol Hill? Is anybody helping you there within the Congress or the House or the Senate? Yeah, I, I, I think we actually we've seen some good progress on this issue in recent years. Most of the attention on think tank funding is about foreign funding of think tanks, which I think is very relevant as well because we we have a lot of think tank funding coming from, uh, you know, places like the UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia and others, these authoritarian regimes who, you know, very much want to take U.S. foreign policy in a militarized direction, too. So I, I think the attention on foreign funding is warranted. Um, but but there are some folks who are focused on, on this issue, too, and just focused on think tank funding more generally. Uh, we, we have, for example, the, the Think Tank Transparency Act uh, championed by Senator Grassley and others. Uh, that, that would mandate think tank funding transparency along the lines of what we're advocating for here. Um, that, unfortunately, that bill hasn't gone anywhere, but it's been reintroduced in this Congress. Uh, so, so there is hope that we'll see action from this. It, 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 really what I, I, in my conversations with folks on the Hill, Ian, 
there's not really a, a good uh, uh, counter argument to this. There's not an, an anti think tank transparency you, you know, group. Uh, more than anything, it's just a question of congressional priorities and, and you know, trying to find the, the, the right space there uh, in, in enough time and political will to get Congress to act on this. But uh, I'm hopeful at the very least. So in terms of the political battle going on over funding Ukraine, and we know that from Putin's point of view, his best play might well be to have the Congress cut off aid to Ukraine. And certainly there's no secret that Putin wants Trump to come back. And Trump has already said he wants to he'll end the war in a day or some, some ridiculous claim. <laughs> and he's also talked about pulling the U.S. out of NATO. So how much does this issue play into the, your finding? In other words, given how much Congress is all about lobbying, is the defense industry lobbying acting as a kind of counterweight to the, the people like the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the so-called Freedom Caucus uh, isolationists, along with a number of people like on, in the Senate like J.D. Vance have made statements to that effect? Yeah, I I don't know that I'd call it a counterweight. I think if it, it, I don't know that anything, frankly, is is a counterweight to the the defense contractors' uh, lo- lobbying operation. You know, it's just it, it's so enormous. They they have they have more lobbyists than than we have members of Congress and senators. Um, and in fact, there's more than 800 <laughs> lobbyists who work for defense industry firms right now. Um, so so it's just an enormous sway. And, and I think in terms of members of Congress too, you, you know the. The folks you mentioned, they're 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 sort of outliers on this issue. You know, most members of Congress, I, I think, continue to support these Ukraine aid packages. And what I I think what we're hearing more and more of is that we need better oversight of where these weapons are going. And as we talked about before, the quality issue. You know, our are the Ukrainians getting quality weapons or is this just a boondoggle for the contractors? You know, we have seen some members of Congress start to talk more and more of that. Some folks are even recommending that we we install something like, like we did in Afghanistan, a, a special inspector uh, to, to look at issues of, of you know, waste and corruption uh, as these weapon transfers go to um, Ukraine. So I, I think at the end of the day, you, you know, I I. I I think those voices that are calling for an end to the aid, you know, they're uh, they, they're outlier voices. Uh, they're uh, and they're really not ruling the day right now. Well, Ben Freeman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure, as always, Ian. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Ben Freeman, who's a research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Previously, he was director of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative at the Center for International Policy and a national security fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, where he spearheaded the Foreign Influence Database. He's the author of The Foreign Policy Auction and has a new report at Responsible Statecraft, How Weapons Firms Influence the Ukraine Debate. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.